Hey there, you're listening to Making Spaces, the podcast about community, culture, and making new connections, hosted by my good Judy, my friend and yours, Sarah Heath. On this podcast, we're having conversations about design, literally making spaces, and how some of the most inclusive spaces aren't always the most inviting. And we're talking about what it means to make space for one another. With the world the way it is right now, we need to find ways to have conversations across lines of radical difference. So join Sarah each week as she tackles the intersection of design and practical spirituality with conversations with some of the most fabulous guests you're ever going to meet. Some will talk about actual design, some of us will talk about relational design, but no matter what, it's an incredible time. So grab yourself a cup of whatever you like, and welcome to Making Spaces with Sarah Heath. And I'm desperate for progressive faith communities like yours and like mine, for the people in it to begin to uh, see the value and the beauty in that sort of model, where yes, I know that you as an individual, you probably don't need this anymore. You, 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 it's just, you'd rather do other things with your Sunday morning, and that makes a whole lot of sense. But also to the extent that you could take a step back and be like, wow, this place provided me this incredible soft landing place mm. to find healing from all these wounding. Like, I don't want to just now say thanks and leave. I want to make sure that other people can find this same. So I will give of my time. I'll give of my resources. I will show up uh, because I want others to find the same sort of wholeness that I found here. do in making space for ourselves and others means we have a massive shift in our belief system. How can we hold on to our belonging and identity when everything feels like it's shifted? I'm grateful this week to share my conversation with Colby Martin, the author of The Shift, as we discuss the way for when you aren't sure what's next. Colby was willing to hop on making spaces with literally zero preparation, and we had an incredible conversation about shifting in belief and making space. He is the co-founder of Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, and he co-hosts his own podcast, The Kate and Colby Show. He helps to resource progressive Christian communities across the U.S. through Launchpad, which is a partnering program, and he's written two books on clobber, rethinking our misuse of the Bible on homosexuality, and recently, The Shift, surviving and thriving after moving from conservative to progressive Christianity. I hope this conversation is helpful and inspiring. Whether you're in a season of needing a space or making a space for people shifting in their belief system, stick around for the weekly takeaway and inspirational quote, as well as a big podcast announcement. I'll ask you the starting question and then we can just let it go where it's going to go. Does that sound good? So the question I ask everybody, and um, I will admit to you that you're the first person I didn't send this to beforehand. So you're, except for Mike McCarg and his answer was hysterical, but actually lovely. I wouldn't even say hysterical. Where is your favorite space or a space you really like? It doesn't have to be favorite, but is there a space that you really like and then you can get as creative as you want with it? And then why? When you think about a space, what do, where do you think of? Wow. Where is my favorite space? Okay. 
I don't know if this is my. Uh, this is doesn't have to be oh. favorite. Okay, so this is the thing I <laughs> just, also say to just, people. Uh, yeah, in the, in the in the upper echelon of faves, just like favorite you, it's is like a it's, tier, right? It's yeah, a category. Because if someone asks me like, "What's my favorite movie?" Like, just get ready to sit no, with no, me no. for like twenty right, minutes right. as I go back and forth. Okay, so here here's what here's the first thing that came up. So I'll just go with that and not overthink Perfect. it. Perfect. That's what the spirit is doing. Go. Uh, wonderful. Um, I think one of my favorite spaces is this is gonna sound weird for a minute but hang in there is in my kitchen in front of my liquor cabinet i'm excited for where now. this is going okay uh-huh <laughs> now let me uh and here's the reason why i a couple years ago fell in love with the uh art of making cocktails uh so that, that scratches a few itches. I love being creative. I love um, honing a particular skill. Um, I, I just sort of love geeking out about a, a thing. And so I dove into the world of cocktails a couple of years ago and just got really excited about it uh, and sort of loved building out my supplies and, and all that. So that, that part's, you know, that, that scratches one itch. But the reason why that comes up for me um, in terms of when you ask what's one of my favorite spaces is because I don't really make drinks for myself. I mean, I do occasionally, but I, I really save any drinking for the weekends. And uh, even then I don't, you know, it's, it's not about me. I love making drinks for other people. I love ah. when we have friends over and I love taking their orders. Uh, I love sharing the, the multiple things I have on hand and letting them choose. I love when they just say, I don't know, make me something, make me something fun and good. And I just, I love that process of designing and creating craft cocktails for my friends and seeing the joy that uh, comes to them when they they get to enjoy a, 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 a delightful drink and they didn't pay $18 for it. Uh, <laughs> and so I just, I love that. I love sharing it with people. Uh, my wife and I throw these big parties and I will make craft cocktail like by the batch and I'll have like four different things up on the bar that have instructions on how to, to build it and just these large pitchers. And anyway, so I, I think one of my favorite spaces to answer your question is in the kitchen in front of my liquor cabinet. That is legitimately a beautiful answer. Um, I love that idea of really it's about hospitality. And that's usually what happens. The reason we ask we as in myself. The reason that I ask that question is really I'm super fascinated about when people describe a space and why they love it. And usually it's not about the actual space. It might be at first like, oh, it's mm. so beautiful. But then they'll share something like, I love that space because it and highlights something about themselves. So like, it's really clear that you like to, you know, welcome people and be sort of a host. And I think that's a big part of even the work that you're doing now is right. Mm. Making space for people, yeah. hosting people, um, hosting people in ways that sort of disarm some of the pain they bring in. Um, and I think when you talk about cocktails, it takes a while, right? It's like a cooking process. There's muddling is involved. I have a friend right. who muddles things. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it's always fun. Like I love to sit as Jaden is making drinks because um, it is a, it's not just about like, oh, I'm just going to have a beverage and forget my pain. It's more about like, oh, we're sitting here in this moment and as he's creating something, it's watching someone be creative and make something that's maybe never been made before, but also that time that you're investing in people. I think that is beautiful. Do not apologize. We've had some really funny ones so um, <laughs> that like turned out to be really poignant. So like someone said they're bed and I was like, oh, here we go. Um, mm. But then it, why was just 
wonderful because that's uh-huh. the space where um, they connect with their family. That's a space where um, their kids tell them the the biggest secrets. Like it's just this wonderful. This is a space that I, you know, love. So I, I love, love that. It. Yeah, even even with my kids in the in in the space in the kitchen in front of the liquor cabinet, they love when they see me making drinks. They ask for mocktails, and it. I'll be honest with you, Sarah. Like. They're, my mocktails aren't anything better than what they can get out of the drink fridge with the <laughs> grapefruit sparkling water. But they love the idea of, you know, yeah. in the midst of me making drinks for all the big people, I make these little custom mocktails for them. And I don't know. It's just it, it delights me. So. I love it. And it's personalized, right? Yep. It's different than yep. like if I reach into the fridge and that's right. Grab something that, you know, everyone else could grab. It's this moment of like connection. You know them, you yeah. know their likes, their dislikes. Um, I think that's beautiful and actually it leads into, so I wanted to have you on. I know I, I don't think I gave you that much of an explanation of the show, but I've been really, I believe your notes were looking forward to it. Yeah. There you go, (laughs) guys. We're in the middle of a, I've recorded a lot this week. And so I think it's funny because everyone else, I'm so sorry, got the welcome, um, you know, email, but I'm grateful that you're like, I'll just come on. So oh, yeah, no apologies. It's all, uh, yeah. Making all Spaces good. is a podcast that com- came out of like the understanding of all of my work, whether um, it's in the church or speaking at events or actually designing spaces for people because that's a fun side project that I do or designing my <laughs> and own you're space. You're so good at it. Thank I you. love watching what you make. Thank you. Yeah. Um, realizing that it's always about making space for other people and making spaces kind of became this idea of, I want to talk to people who are designers of culture as well as designers of like actual spaces, because I think they're kind of trying to get to the same thing, which is where we're in proximity and um, which is really funny in the midst of we're still (laughs) sheltering in place friends. Um, And I think as I hear um, and kind of followed your work, because we've been friends on Instagram for quite a while because we share some like a lot of dear friends and um i love when your book came out you're like do you know who i am i'm like yes i know who you are I've driven down <laughs> i didn't want i did not want to presume that you would have remembered a Dude, rather totally. singular interaction <laughs> um well and i've also come down to your church before but um i don't know that we chatted that day but um for a couple of things but you have created this space for people who um have come out of Usually it's people who have sort of the nuns and duns, which is a lot of folks that I work with. Yeah. Uh, so folks who used to be part of um, religious settings that they've sort of begun to kind of shift out of. And so you wrote a book called The Shift and you've written other books, but I love this, a survival guide for those who made the shift to progressive Christianity. And that is just a great title and it's a great thing to have. Would you mind, just for folks who don't know your work, giving a little background of how you ended up kind of making the shift or how you kind of, how you got to where you are? Yeah. So I was uh, born and raised into a Baptist family. My dad comes from a long line of uh, Baptists and uh, my mom actually was a first generation um, Christian, Uh, but we were that, I don't know, somewhat typical Western American evangelical Protestant family of uh, going to church every Sunday, multiple times uh, during the week, choir practice, youth group. And, uh, you know, then when my parents divorced, my mom uh, didn't really feel comfortable in the Baptist 
world anymore. And so it took me. <laughs> I, I know that does shock most people of whom I tell that story to. Um, so we found a different church to go to, just kind of a generic evangelical church. Mm. And it was there that uh, going into my senior year of high school that I had uh, this really impactful moment on a youth conference where I really, uh, in a significant way, felt a connection with God and really felt at that time I would have uh, identified it as a calling, a calling to go into ministry, a calling to give my life. Again, I would have said at that time, give my life to the Lord and, and live my life for Jesus. And so I, I, I abandoned my plans to be a graphic designer and enrolled in um, lo and behold, the local Baptist college in, in near my town. And where, uh, where did you grow up? Just to give a background. Yeah. Uh, Oregon, born okay. and raised in Oregon, the uh, uh, great Pacific Northwest. I love Oregon. This explains the beard. It does. It's the, <laughs> yes. The beard grows really well. I think it's just in my lumberjack jeans. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, went to a uh, four year college, got my degree in pastoral ministry, started uh, while I was there, I learned how to play guitar and became yeah, a... Yeah, you did. <laughs> thank you. Uh, became a, a worship leader of sorts. And so when I graduated college, I actually went into worship and arts ministry. Um, and that took me on a... You know, I, I worked at a church in Salem, Oregon for a couple of years. Then my wife and I and two kids moved down to Phoenix, Arizona. And we spent five years there. But in that time in Arizona, and really it was right before we left... Um, uh, Oregon, I started, uh, well, I'll just say I started reading books that would not have made my Baptist professor's approved <laughs> reading list. Gotcha. Uh, and the first one that comes to mind is a book by Brian McLaren, A New Kind of Christian. And, you know, I read that today and there's nothing incredibly revolutionary for me now in that book, but holy smokes, at the time when I read it, it... Uh, it blew my mind. It blew my mind mm -hmm. because it, it, it uh, what it did is it gave me, Sarah, it gave me the permission to not have the answer for everything. Right. And at that time in my life, and really a sort of mixture of nature and nurture, like kind of who I am as a person and the environment in which I was raised into, having the right answer, especially as it relates to religious things, that was everything. Apologetics, right? Like there's Absolutely. an apologetics from your background, which is like yes, being able to defend the faith and and argue uh, and critique other religions, and mm. and I was I was known as the Bible answer man because I could just run circles around people, and my community <laughs> loved me for it. They applauded. Like I was well celebrated for just having all the answers. Now I was 23, 24 years old. Of course, nobody had all the answers, but that was that was the story I told myself. Gosh, 23, I was in grad school. I did not think I had any answers. <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some gender thing going on there where I was allowed to think I had all the answers. Um, so, yeah, but this book, it unlocked in me permission to ask questions. And it unlocked in me permission to have as a response to those questions simply be, I don't know. Oh. And uh, that set me on a journey, Sarah, of um, reading. I think then I moved to... N.T. Wright, which was this kind of gateway drug yes. into leftist liberal progressive theology. Um, which is just, so funny because my my tribe, tribe, I hate that use of the term, my background, uh, after I, they like, N.T. Wright, they're like, oh, man, he's conservative. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in conservative sure. circles as well, yeah, but yeah, yeah. they would be like, whoa, but again, it's a gateway drug. 
Yeah, for the Baptist in me, it was uh, it was a whole new way of looking at the Bible and Jesus and. Um, so then, then to fast forward a bit, my time in Arizona came to an abrupt halt when the leadership there discovered that I had shifted my theology on LGBTQ inclusion. And so when they discovered that I was um, now okay with gay people and would uh, be in favor of same-sex marriage, they abruptly fired me, and that set me on a path towards um, coming out to San Diego, which is where my wife and our four kids now live, and we ended up starting our own church about six years ago. And as you mentioned, yes, we now one of our one of our main um, front doors of our church, Sojourn Grace Collective, is kind of this safe landing place mm. for people who have either moved away from their conservative religious background or maybe been kicked out of their conservative communities. And yet they're still looking for something, as I say in the book, they're still looking for something that anchors them to this tradition, this heritage of Christianity. They're not totally entirely ready to, to walk away from it altogether. And yet it has to be something that is more open, inclusive, mm -hmm. grace-filled. Um, you know, and, and in, in the book, I talk about it as, as a progressive Christianity, um, which is just my shorthand way of naming a few particular markers about it. But not everybody adopts either of those terms. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of been what our, our church has been doing for the last six years is helping people to navigate in many ways that uh, that experience. It's a really interesting uh, sacred and holy place, I think, to sit with people who are experiencing uh, what is kind of not necessarily understood outside of Christianity is particularly outside of um, evangelicalism is people totally. have like it's it is actually like a, a divorce of sorts um, yeah. or a, you know there's a TV show called Breaking Amish and um, I think it gave people a, a view into what it's like to leave behind your certainties and it can be the scariest thing you've ever gone through, particularly if you've felt abandonment and then the church felt like adoption. That's a language a lot of times churches mm. use. And then to feel like, wait a minute, I was adopted into a family that I don't know what to do with now. And um, as you've been, I really enjoyed your book. As someone who didn't, like I grew up, you know, in Canada, and so we've got sort of a different shift of things and then moved to the States, but I moved to Mississippi and tried to become like a really good American, which meant being a really good Christian. Um, and I, I tell the story cause it makes everyone laugh. Like when I, I started dating this guy who played football, he was a really good Christian. And I remember calling my like best friend back in Canada and I was like, Hey, you know, telling her about this, you know, hunk of a guy I was dating. And I said to her, um, he's just like, he really loves the Lord. And she like said, what the F does that mean? <laughs> and I remember just being like, oh, culture clash, right? Like, what? It, like what? He really loves the Lord. Yeah. That's she's just, like, that's part of our vernacular here. That, yeah. What? Knows what that. She's like, I don't know what that, like, are you in a cult? Like she was so confused by my words. Um, wow. but I was like living a country song, you know, three and a half years together with the high school captain of the football team. You know, it's just so. But that seemed like the thing. And so you have identity and belonging. And then when you don't have identity and belonging, when a shift, you know, probably when I got into college is when I started saying, actually, this, you know, I, I was part of a Baptist student union and then mm. also the Methodist group. And I was like, I don't, the Baptist, I loved them. Their worship leaders were more attractive. But um, I, I did definitely have that moment of like, 
I don't belong here. And I didn't feel like I belonged in the either one, other one either, but at least there was more of a, a breadth and a diversity. But it, it's interesting to me how survival guide is a great word for it um, because you're just offering like, hey, here are some things you can do to maintain um, self in the midst of this. Like just yeah. yesterday, I got a text from one of my former parishioners who has actually moved away. So by parishioner, I just mean someone who used to be part of my church community. Um, I have to pay attention because there are folks who this like follow this podcast who are uh, they're like, I don't know what all these. They're like mean. your friend in Canada. What? I'm right. Sorry, what, what the what f? Did you say? <laughs> by the way, you're totally allowed to cuss, but for some reason it was funnier to say what the f. Okay. Um, Sometimes it is funnier. Right. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm with you. So she, uh, you know, I kind of, what, what is all of this and how do we, you know, I, she sent me this text and she just had sent me pictures of a empty bookshelf. And she said, I got rid of all my Christian books. Hmm. And I said to her, yeah, um, why don't you keep those in the box? Because what you and I have experienced and seen time after time is folks who make this shift, um, make it really extreme for a minute. It's kind of like when our Christian friends threw away all the good CDs and I got them all. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. No non-Christian music. And then you're like, sweet, can I have them? Um, and so, so many Alanis Morissette CDs did I get in high school. And so then this shift is so extreme and then you kind of pull back and maybe some of the things are helpful as you were writing this, were you writing from your own perspective of making space in your life, or was it more from all the people you had walked with? It was both. It was both, and I, and I like how you um, I like how you phrase that because it, in many ways, what this book is not. So this book is not just a memoir. So this is not a, a story of me losing my faith and finding my faith, although there's pieces of that sprinkled in there. This is not a, a book about deconstruction. So, for people that are are ready to tear down their 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 religious structure or their their beliefs, um, you know, there's a little bit of that in here. But this isn't really about that, and it's not even really about reconstruction. It's not even really about okay. So then, here now is what you should believe. Um, instead, it is it, it's trying to exist in this liminal space, this transition space where a person has likely already had or done some deconstruction. They've already sort of either torn mm. down or had torn down for them. Um, they have had some shifting, some loss of beliefs. And and, and they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I then still um, exist in this? How do I still right. survive? Let alone, like for some people, even thinking about thriving is, is, is just far beyond the pale. Um, how, do, how do I just survive? And so that's really where I wanted to try to enter in and say, yeah, so to answer your question, part of it is here. here is what has helped me survive this. Here's what has helped me uh, in some ways sift through the, the baby with the bathwater. And, mm -hmm. and you're, you're totally right, Sarah. A, a, a lot of times people's uh, journey looks like completely draining the entire tub mm -hmm. uh, and then discovering, oh, wait, <laughs> maybe there's a, maybe there's still a baby in here um, that could use some of my love and, and care and attention. But that, that's, that's a difficult, uh, you know, that's sort of sifting through the weed and the chaff is not something we're all that good at, especially when we come from, um, 
environments that have really wrapped us around the axle as it relates to believing the right things and holding on to a certainty. Beginning to disentangle from that is, is a really complicated, messed up process. And so a lot of times people do just need to have a complete break. It's like in high school when my friends would uh, break up with their, their girlfriend. I don't know why I told them this, but for some reason I thought I was super wise. I would yeah. say, uh, I would say, I don't think you can just be friends with them right away. I think you need to just have a hard break for a couple months and then maybe you can start to be friends again. Uh, and uh, for some reason that seemed to be true, like as it relates to people's finding friendship after uh, yeah. a breakup. Um, and I think sometimes that might be true as it re relates to our, our sort of spiritual religious world is that maybe we do need to have this hard break. I've had people come to our church uh, and quickly I've realized, yeah, you probably shouldn't come for a while. Like you might yeah. need to just take a break from church. Which is like um, a super weird moment for them. It's, it's counterintuitive. Yeah. Like, yeah. It actually, goes against you're, everything. You're not ready. We're going to take a brief break from this conversation to listen to some messages from our sponsors that make this podcast possible. Hey friends, are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for election day. I mean, you got to check if you're voted registered to vote at your current address because, I mean, more than 60% of eligible voters have never been asked to register, um, and headcount.org is working to change that. I checked mine recently, and guess what? It was not correct, so I needed to change it, and now it is correct. But sometimes these mistakes happen where you need to really check it out because, it could mess up your voting, and Lord knows this election is very important. Um, Headcount is a nonpartisan nonprofit that tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote. Sick. But you don't need to leave your house to register or get voting info. Just head to headcount.org. Headcount. Head to headcount. Head to headcount. Registered vote at headcount.org. And that's a, it's a painful thing, I think. Uh, I know, actually, having, you know, even my faith has shifted so much as well, but I, watching people, if I give up this, then I, like, where does that lead? Because they've heard words like slippery slope, mm -hmm. or um, you're letting, you know, <laughs> you're letting the devil's foot in, or whatever it might be. Like, I've heard yeah. all kinds of things that... Um, or what if, if I'm wrong? What if I'm this? wrong? Um, and letting it's a, it's a shift that has to happen, but it, yeah. if you rush the process, it's also, um, it's just damaging. And I think I, I like to use, cause I love construction and building mm -hmm. things, but I, um, one of my friends and I were talking about the difference between deconstruction and demolition and, um, demolition of a property. You're not planning to use anything from it, but when you deconstruct, with the hope of maybe at some point doing some, some sort of like restoration or maybe even reclaiming, you take things that are not useful apart. And sometimes it's helpful in that to walk away from it because you're realizing that you're just building the same thing in a different mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And so 
when I went through a series on this, I actually took apart our front door of our church and turned it into a, into a communion table and a bench. <laughs> and each week I would say, you know, nobody knew where it was headed, but we would talk about the idea of deconstruction versus demolition. And deconstruction is actually quite healthy, but we have been taught because of the fear of people, I think within the community, that to make space for people's doubts, to make space for people's differences, like actual differences, um, is dangerous because, you know, what if what if these impurities come in? But it's just not actually part of a healthy ownership of your own faith. And I think the people often who yell the loudest, I can't express to people how much I've sat with former pastors who were like, I used to just say this thing and I was so sure. And then, you know, you've sold that to so many people and then you yourself don't believe it, but what do you do and how do you get out of it once you've said it? And so the brave thing is to sort of allow other people to have doubts and fears, but it, it can be, it can be really kind of brutal and raw for folks like you and me who are working with these folks because Sometimes there's trauma that comes up and anger that comes towards you. And um, I've, I've been surprised as you make space for people, you also have to make space for their pain. And sometimes it can be quite hurting as a pastor who's like, no, I'm doing, I'm wanting to like walk with you in this. And people, you know, do disappear or flake out or have anger or trauma that you weren't expecting around things that you yeah. weren't expecting. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to say two things in response to that. Um, because it was just going to be one, but then you said that thing at the end, so I'm going to loop back around to that. But to go back to uh, an earlier thing, you were, and I love that, Sarah, the, the demolition versus deconstruction and contrasting that. It's it's super helpful and makes it really, um, really clear to, to kind of discern the difference there. And you've also said a couple times, you've named how painful uh, and how scary the process can be. And which we said is a is un, is rather unique to this experience. It is. Mm -hmm. It's a unique type of uh, fear and and loneliness uh, and and confusion. And so that's one of the big reasons why I thought this book was so needed. Yes. Was I wanted to normalize that for people. Yep. Like just be like you're you're going through this shift and it's scary and it's hard and it's lonely and none of those are indicators that you're therefore doing it wrong. It is just these things. Right. It is. And, and, and to try to normalize that and, 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 and really help people. Um, and so what comes up for me when you talk about the, the, the fear of the com that happens in the community uh, or, or just the internal sense of, of people's panic, so much of that is rooted in this idea that what we've been, what many of us have been taught in our conservative religious backgrounds is that the most important thing to God, the thing that the God of the universe, the creator of the cosmos <laughs> cares about most is what a human being thinks, what a human being believes, the ideas that are captured in between the ears of a homo sapien. Somehow we have been convinced, we've been taught, we've bought into this idea that what God cares about most is what we believe. And I am adamant that that cannot be real, <laughs> that that cannot be the thing that is at the top of the divine's, um, you know, preferred list for humanity. Uh, it, 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 just simple things like 
as, as a parent myself. They're just, they're, they're really, if I were to make a list of the top 27 things that I care most about my children, nothing on that list is going to be, well, I hope they think the right things about me. I hope they, I hope they have the right ideas about who I am and what I do for a living and what my job is and how I work. Uh, I really, it's just, it isn't, it just isn't on the list. I don't really care what they think about me. Um, and then I also think about, because this is helpful for people, if you want to look at the person of Jesus, he seemed by and large uninterested in what people believed about him. Right. He was very concerned that people believed him, meaning like that they, they thought his words and his teachings and his life was trustworthy and reliable. Like, believe me, would be Jesus's insistence. Believe me that uh, uh, mercy is better than sacrifice and that forgiveness is better than revenge and that love it like believe me but in terms of believing a particular thing about him it just it wasn't he wasn't interested in that and even when people did and you know this even when people did uh have a particular profession of faith or believe something about him like you are the christ you are the messiah his response was eh, don't tell anybody like <laughs> like if if truly if the thing that mattered most to God is that we believed the right things and if Jesus is 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 a reliable representation of God if, if Jesus is God in the flesh then we would expect that Jesus would also think or, or care that people believed the right things so that we could pass some sort of eternal test and yet Jesus just seemed like to me a terrible teacher if the goal is to get people to believe the right things yeah in fact so, <laughs> like I always joke that like being friends with Jesus would be really awful because you'd be like just wanting a simple answer like jesus what do you want for lunch and just he would say what answer. do you think i should want for lunch what do you you know well, these, so <laughs> these two farmers were hungry yeah, one right, day <laughs> right and you're like bro do you want the ham sandwich we're jewish so do we have them? i mean he yeah. you know the person of jesus and even when my own faith you know i'm like i don't know about this jesus thing I, there is something so compelling about the the life when you take off, you know, when you do that, taking off some of the cultural biases as Western folk we've put on it, or even as Caucasian folks that we've put on and you just sit with it and hear it. The story is still so compelling. I'm not, I'm not compelled by the Jesus as my boyfriend story. I was for a long time. Like I loved cosmic Santa Claus for a while. Um, and some of the best songs are made about him, but I, there is something so compelling about someone who would say the things that Jesus said that were very much about making space for people and their thoughts and um, just a bigger story. And I, I hate that we've taken this big story and made it so small and about mm. one prayer and about like, yeah, because you can't. So the idea of orthodoxy or right belief, um, the problem with that is it's a it's a moving target. Um, our brains constantly, right? If we're culturally, culturally, uh, time, like time wise, where you are on the sort of the timeline of history, um, where you grew up, who you grew up in people had we had no choice where we were born. We have no choice to who we were born to. We have no choice into what part of the culture, what part of the world. None of that had, like, we don't get any choice in that matter. Mm -mm. And so are we therefore, are we still maintaining that, that the thing that God demands or cares most about is that we believe the right things. Do you know how many people never even have a freaking shot to believe anything close to what people might say are the right things? Well, right. And then my <laughs> rights are the biggest right. And every time I get to the, like, my right belief is such, is the important right belief. 
I have gotten to a place where I have so much compassion and, and sadness for those folks. Um, because I think, oh, that comes out of so much fear. And I've had moments where someone has been, you know, wanting to debate me and I, and I'll say to them, you look, I, it's not that I don't know what you believe. It's just that I don't believe what you believe. And I'm really comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm really comfortable with you believing that as long as it's not harming people, other people, your beliefs can be harmful, but if you're not ready to shift them, then I, you know, I can't argue with you. That's not, no one actually, I've read a lot of studies about the lack of transformation for folks. It's never through argument. Um, people no. just yeah. actually get deep, more deeply rooted in That's their right. beliefs. So then what, what's the, what I would say the offering that the shift talks about. And I love, cause in the back you have like very practical, here are some things that you can do. And one of them is like show up to a community, um, but then give yourself permission to not always have to go. <laughs> and I love that. And it's, you know, it's really hard. And I, I would think that you have found this as well. It's really hard to create a space where people are committed, but aren't there all the time. Um, because we're trying really hard not to be manipulative uh, because we don't, we want to take away some of the, you have to believe this, you have to do this, but there That's is right. something healthy about growing in community. If it is a diverse space, um, have you found that you've gotten like people stay in it for a longevity or do you have sort of the experience we have here is that, people are involved and there are some people who have been involved for a really long time, but we live in an area where so many people move in and out when you're creating this, you know, you've been in six years now. Yeah. So is there sort of this core group or have you found that a lot of people, this is part of their shift? I, it, it's all, yeah. it, it's all, all sorts of different um, experiences happen. So I think, I, I give our our early launch team, mm. you know, the, the the six of us that sat in our living room six years ago, dreaming up this thing and coming up with a name. Um, I give us a lot of uh, credit for how um, insightful and prescient we were without okay. maybe totally knowing it. We, we knew that in terms of naming our church, our church's name is Sojourn. Grace Collective. And, and we picked Sojourn in part because we loved the way that it pointed to how life is really just a, about constant movement and transformation and growth and development. And so the word Sojourn just means a short stay somewhere. So you're, you're just always moving and shifting and changing. Um, but I don't know that we necessarily fully anticipated how we as an organization would actually live into that uh, namesake. And what we've discovered is that as people uh, show up to sojourn, they, uh, very much sojourn at sojourn. And so we have had to, uh, we've had to, to settle into, and there was a, a period there where we sort of fought against this and we did sort of a, a clenched fist, like, no, we got to figure out how to retain people. And we talked about stickiness. How do we keep people to, to come? Cause oh, like you said, church the, planners the, love the stickiness. Oh dear God. That was just for about 12 months. That was all we heard and talked about. Uh, and like you said, uh, it, it makes a ton of sense, 
because people come and they're detaching from these ideas. And we do a lot of work to say, no, 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 there's no angry God that becomes less angry. If you show up to church more often, there's no obligation to be here. There's no God that is going to guarantee to bless you if you give money and show up regularly and be a part of it. So we, we, we detach from these unhelpful uh, theological ideas. But then what happens is people start to take you up on it. And they're like, I oh, know. oh, you mean I don't have to come to church? Cool. Then I won't come to church. Oh, you mean I don't have to like support financially this in order to have good returns in my life? Oh, well, then maybe I will not do that. And people start to take you up on it. You're like, oh, well, cool. Right. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Uh, so we, but we've gone through our own, Kate and I have gone through our own journey with this. And, and we're, we've settled back into this, this open-handed posture of, look, however long you find yourself with us, um, we are grateful to be a part of your life in this way. And right. it might just be one Sunday. You might just show up because you had a, a, a rough Saturday night and you Googled, you know, progressive Christian church and you just sort of stumbled in the next morning <laughs> and you just needed a moment to have someone say to you, you are a loved child of God, full stop. And that might just be all you needed to, to, for whatever, for your next season of life. Or maybe for six months, you come and you, you go through this sort of spiritual healing, recovering from some of your past wounds. Uh, and then at the end of it, you're like, wow, I, I kind of feel put back together again. I, um, I think I'm good now. Thank you. Like, you know, you don't, you don't go to your therapist forever. You eventually sort of be like, Oh, I think I can move on now. Uh, and then, yeah, there are some people absolutely who've been with us from the beginning who, um, and in many ways I, I see this, uh, so this is kind of a long winded answer, but I'll close it with this. <laughs> I think part of why the model of AA works, mm. and I don't know this personally, I just know this anecdotally. I think part of why the model works is because people show up and they begin to develop some sort of recovery in their life. They begin to experience some sort of wholeness or healing. And then what happens is you don't have to be very far down the road in your recovery process, but eventually you get invited to turn around and extend a hand to the person behind you who might just be a few clicks behind you and you're just there to help them. And the reason I think the why the, the model of AA in part why it's so sustainable is because you have people who find the healing that they need but then they stick around to ensure that the people behind them can find the same sort of healing. And I'm desperate for progressive faith communities like yours and like mine, for the people in it to begin to see the value and the beauty in that sort of model. Where yes, I know that you as an individual, you probably don't need this anymore. It's just, you'd rather do other things with your Sunday morning and that makes a whole lot of sense. But also to the extent that you could take a step back and be like, wow, this place? provided me this incredible soft landing place mm. to find healing from all this wounding. Like, I don't want to just now say thanks and leave. I want to make sure that other people can find this same. So I will give of my time. I'll give of my resources. I will show up because I want others to find the same sort of wholeness that I found here. Yeah. Oh, Beautiful. And I think making space for other people, we, as we talk more and more, oftentimes it's a, it starts with a inside shift and then all of a sudden your eyes are open to those around you who also 
need a space. Kobe, thank you so much. I have a question that I love. I, I can't wait to hear your answer for. If you could think of like one tangible way for people, either if they're a pastor or even if they're not a pastor, if they are Christian or not Christian, whatever it might be, if you think about, I think of you as someone who curates um, community, what is one tangible way that people can make space for other people? Just one, sort of a, a, a takeaway from, from today. So like one, I know, one thing. It's really hard to ask a pastor. We, we like to work in threes. <laughs> My wife mocks me all the time. And I'm like, well, I, three things come up for me in that. She's <laughs> like, of course they do. Of course. <sighs> yeah. Okay. So here's my thought. I'm ready. Here's my thought for those who, like you said, find themselves in places and positions where they are themselves making space for those who are, who are going through some sort of shift. Mm. And this isn't, this isn't groundbreaking. A lot of times we know the things we know. We just need to maybe be reminded that we know them. Mm. But here's what I'd say. Remember your own shift mm. and remember how very little part you probably played in that, which is to say, when I think about my own shift, I, the, the resources, the conversations, the things almost just seem to appear in my life, mm. almost as though it was this free act of grace that the universe bestowed upon me. Like, I can't, Sarah, take a whole lot of credit for my shift. It wasn't <laughs> as though I woke up one morning and was like, all right, Colby, you've put in a solid 24 years. It's time to get real objective and intentional about who you are in this life. Right. And it's time to be like, that's just not how it happened as much as I'd like to pretend that it is. It was a, it was a sort of a slow unraveling um, in ways that I just don't know that I can take a whole lot of credit for. So remember your own shift. Remember that you came out of a place that you, like I said earlier, didn't have a whole lot of choice in. Um, so have some compassion, compassion for yourself when you think about where you used to be and the things you used That's to believe. That's a great and you have those, chapter in your book, you by have the way. These moments of like, <laughs> how could I have ever thought that way? Or how could I have ever Who acted am like that? I? Yeah, well, I don't know that you had a whole lot of choice otherwise. So give yourself, be kind to yourself. Remember where you came from. Remember that your shift was largely uh, an act of grace anyway. And so as you make space for the people around you who are coming to you or in your life to as much as you can have as open hands and open heart as possible to not have any expectation that these people would go in any particular journey in their life. Oof. And this is really hard for those of us who maybe were trained in ministry, um, whether it was in school or just in an internship, where we very much sort of were, you know, sheep herders, and we wanted to move people along in a very specific way uh, in these discipleship programs or whatever. And so, and we come to these relationships and people can always tell, they can always feel like, ah, I kind of feel like you're expecting something from me. I kind of feel like you're wanting me to become something and right. maybe even something that looks like you. 
And so as much as we can just be these midwives that stand next to Ooh. people while they're birthing something into the world without any expectation that it looks how we want it to look, that it sounds how we want it to sound, that it feels how we want it to feel, I think that's one of the best gifts we can give the people that we are making space for. You know, that is beautiful. It made me the imagery of a midwife. I think about our goal in sort of thinking through our own shifts is to become a non-anxious presence to other people's shifts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you think about a midwife or, um, you know, my dad delivered babies for a long time as a doctor, not for a hobby. Um, and I, <laughs> I think the reason why when, you know, I don't have kids, but when I was thinking through having, uh, what would it be like? I'd want my dad in the room. And the reason is my dad is like the most non-anxious presence in the world. Wow. And it's kind of like, I would look at him and say, is this okay? And you can just do so much when someone is looking at you with the eyes of like, this is okay. And I think this book helps us not only process our own shift, but create space for the shift in others. And Mm. I love that, like surrendering the outcome, you know, this baby's going to be born. And now what do we, what is it? Doesn't, it's not up to us. We get to just be this non, you know, just this, I'm going to receive it, um, whatever it is. So Kobe, thank you for the work you do. Um, you did an incredible book launch in the midst of a pandemic. I have to tell you, (laughs) I was like working Uh, out while watching you guys do it. It was so fun. And I am grateful for all that you're doing and looking forward to even knowing you more. And um, I'm sure I'll have you on again, but thank you for making space for people and for taking this time today. Reverend Sarah, it has been my honor and delight. So thank you. Thank you for sticking around to listen to Two Pastors Talk. And I hope you found something that will be helpful as you try and make space for yourself and others. Whether you are in your own shift or you're helping others shift, I hope, like Kobe said, you are having compassion for yourself and others and letting go of the need to lead people anywhere. You know, I love a good quote. And so each week I try to bring you one from my collection. I've been keeping a collection of quotes for a very long time. This conversation reminded me of John Steinbeck's words. And now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. May we all learn to let go of needing to be right and maybe try to lean in a little to be good. Well, friends, this ends our 20th episode of Making Spaces, and I have loved all these conversations and episodes. I'm so grateful to Stephen Burnett, who edits for me. We're going to take a little break as I take some time to make more videos for our YouTube channels that will focus on kind of the more practical side of making space through design and rebuilding. We're also going to do a little work on intentionally marketing and sharing our first season of Making Spaces. Season two will start back soon, and there's some really excited guests lined up. I cannot wait. Before I go, I want to thank those of you who have given us a five-star rating on things. I'm so grateful, and it really means a lot as I try to get this show out to more people so we can make space together. So thank you for all that you are doing. It really is making a difference. And I'll see you soon. Making Spaces is edited by Stephen Burnett from The Cult Popcast. The introduction music is It Can Be Done by Ari via Epidemic Sound. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and let us know that we're on the right track.